Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is New Books in Science Fiction, a podcast about science fiction, books, and writing. I'm Rob Wolf with the Nothing But Evil edition. Today, I'm excited to talk to Premi Muhammad, whose debut novel, Beneath the Rising, offers a portrait of a complicated, long-standing friendship that gets tested by the ultimate challenge, fighting a force of all-powerful evil. Primi Muhammad is an Indo-Caribbean scientist. Her short fiction has appeared in a variety of venues, including Analog, Escape Pod, Augur, and Nightmare Magazine. And I'm thrilled to have her on the Skype line with me now from her home in Edmonton, Alberta. Welcome to the pod. Hi, Rob. Thank you for the invite. How are you, Primi? Isn't that a difficult question to answer these days? Back in the day, we would just say, oh, I'm fine, and how are you? And now everybody takes a minute and a really deep breath. I think I am coping pretty well, all things considered. Uh, I have a couple of medical conditions that make me at very high risk for the plague that is going around this plague year. So I am in the house a lot, and I don't go out even with a mask on and trying to keep physical distancing. Luckily, I like being in my house, (laughs) and I think I have it a little easier than my extrovert friends. The book came out in March, just before COVID-19 took the world by storm. Was the timing good or bad? And I mean good in the sense that people say they have more time to read, maybe. But of course, it must have messed with the rollout of the book in some ways, just as it's messed with so many things. Yeah, I don't know how sales are doing. I suppose I could probably ask my editor, but that's a horrifying prospect. I don't want to. But it was kind of sad that I had a bunch of local events planned in person with friends and family and and with readers and at local bookstores. All those had to be canceled except for one, which was able to happen March 14th, right before everything really locked down. And I also had um, arranged by my publicist uh, in the UK Uh, kind of like a little book tour, almost a signing tour. So there were going to be stops at Foils and Waterstones and Forbidden Planets in the UK. And I was going to combine it with a con and also um, a holiday. And it was going to be almost a month long. Everything was all set up. All my co-signers were set up. And then the virus happened and everything had to be canceled. So I'm kind of sad that that never got to happen. You know, they say, You only get to debut once, and so I debuted straight into a plague. (laughs) Wow, you have a story to tell. What can you do? Well, let's dive into the book and start with the main characters of Beneath the Rising. There's Nick and there's Joanna Meredith Chambers, a.k.a. Johnny. Let's start with Johnny. Tell me about her. I've been referring to her as a terrible goblin child. And I don't think that's incorrect. But 
where where she kind of came out of was while I was writing this book, I was actually doing my undergrad. So I started when I was about uh, 18 or so, Nick's age, when I was about second year. And so when I started, they were very much peers. And I also really kind of just chafed against, railed against what I felt were these limitations put on not just quite reasonably undergrad students, because again, if you've seen a bunch of 18 year olds in a lab, uh, <laughs> you, you start to think maybe the world is going to end because terrible things happen. But just just science in general, I thought, why why doesn't science get the funding and the recognition and the prestige and the time that I feel it deserves in my science degree? Again, aged 18, don't know anything about the world. All I could see were these limitations. And I started to think, I'm going to put a scientist in something. I don't know what, something. And she's not going to have any limits, nothing. And then later on, as, as the book was developing, it almost seemed natural to stop and ask the next obvious question, which was, if you happen to not have any limits put on you, if no one ever says no to you, what kind of personality do you develop? What kind of person do you turn into? And the answer, unfortunately, is Johnny Chambers. <laughs> Exactly. So she is a she is a genius. I mean, she at, at, as a teenager, as a child, is accomplishing incredible things, making world changing inventions, and is super rich too, right? Because of that. Well, before we go on and explore, because that that really speaks to her relationship with Nick, because there's a lot of contrast in their relationship. I just want to pause for a moment because you, you're a scientist and Johnny's a scientist and she's a child prodigy. And you wrote Beneath the Rising as, as you said, undergraduate, as a young person, as a child, one could say, one could argue. And Johnny says she wants to save the world. So then I thought, oh, well, maybe Premi wants to save the world, too. So where, where do the parallels begin and end? Well, I think I got into that degree. Um, well, I jokingly told people that, and this was a molecular genetics degree, I jokingly told people that I was getting into it so that I could clone a dinosaur army and therefore rule the world. But really, I think that's what any scientist is hoping to do, is in some small infinitesimal way be the brick in the wall that eventually does wall the world off from disaster is you're just a, a component of it. And yeah, I think there may have been a little bit of self insert there. Um, mostly because I started university at 16 and was just absolutely so sick of people asking me if I was there on like a school trip or something <laughs> and not being able to drink to kill the pain until second year university. So I'd have friends going out and being like, oh, finals are over. Let's go out for a drink. And I'm like, I can't. I'll get us kicked out again because it kept happening because I didn't have a fake ID like the rest of my white friends who could just swap each other's ID because it all looked very similar. <sighs> oh, my. Oh, and, and, and so the drinking age, though, is 18? 18, yeah. The states now, I think every state is 21. So you would have had to have waited forever. I would have actually graduated. I graduated when I was 20. So <laughs> there you go. Well, so the book's core is really very much about Johnny and Nick's friendship. So I suppose before we go on and explore that, tell me a little bit about Nick as well. Nick, I think, also was self-insert. And I think, again, looking back with the perspective of 
whatever it was, 18 years since the book was actually finished the first time, young writers, I think, tend to write a lot about themselves, whether they mean to or not, because that's where they have the most experience and knowledge. And so Nick was also, I think, a lot like me, uh, not just his background, which is which was the same as mine, because I thought it would be interesting to have the contrast. But, uh, you know, the oldest child, somebody with a lot of anxiety over the responsibilities that he can't seem to let go of, even if they're not really his business. And someone who is loyal to a fault, who makes things and people family and and sticks with them, even when it's uh, dangerous for him. And again, like me at the time, and I guess still now, very much a person who feels responsible for things and therefore throws his body between problems and people he cares about first and asks questions later, which I think causes him some difficulties in the book as it's caused me some difficulties in life. Is you actually have to ask those questions first, not after. Yeah, well, so Nick and Johnny have a very intense and close and longstanding friendship, but they come from different social classes, or maybe Johnny has entered a different social class, certainly, sort of a Bill Gates-like stratosphere of great fortune from, from her inventions and things. Presumably, maybe they have a different IQ. I mean, Nick is very smart, but Johnny is like record-smashing prodigy, so no one could be as smart as her. And they're different races. Johnny is white. Nick is, as you say, like you. Uh, he has parents, I guess, from Guyana and of Indian heritage. Yeah. That packs the relationship with a lot of places where there could be resentment, potential conflicts, and yet they do stick it out through the course of the book. So I wondered if you could talk about the tensions in their relationship. I mean, without ruining any of the surprises. I mean, it's up to you if you want to ruin surprises, but... <laughs> If we just talk about what has drawn them together and what are some of the obstacles that they deal with. Yeah, uh, as you say, there's contrast in a lot of different ways there. And again, that was pulled from me, ages 18, 19, 20, um, having very close relationships um, with friends who were in different social classes than me and who were mostly white. My best friend, for instance, uh, we've been best friends since I was probably 11. So I think there's a lot of our relationship there in that Nick and Johnny relationship. But his family was very, very solidly upper middle class and uh, made a lot more money than mine. And it wasn't something we ever really talked about. It was more just the case that sometimes we'd be playing in the basement or making a mixtape or something. And we'd come upstairs and his mom would be like, oh, my God, get back in the basement because I'm having the mayor over tonight and there's going to be wine and cheese and everyone would be so dressed up and we'd kind of look at each other like, okay, we'll, we'll go back downstairs. Kind of. And it wasn't something I really thought about till I was a bit older and realizing, you know, and, and we still talk all the time. I love him dearly. Uh, he lives several provinces away now, but realizing how much money their side had and that what he referred to sometimes as going on vacation was going to their second home in Montana or, you know, that they had these timeshares. And that was why he was able to spend, if he wanted to, six weeks in Hawaii every year and just watching it kind of build up while my family stayed exactly where it was 
and I think I or I hope that contrast of kind of watching someone in a different class but not really wanting to be part of it came through with Nick and and his family too which is the same as mine you know we came here as immigrants we don't take handouts we don't take gifts we don't take charity we work our way up if we're planning on getting anywhere so there was very much that sense and I also really wanted to explore or or push into the usual tropes about mixed gender friendships because a lot of my friends have always been dudes and they often were when I was a kid at one point I think I had like one female friend and then she moved (laughs) it was just grim and horrible and I'd look around and be like oh god I'm surrounded by boys I'm surrounded by teenage boys ah which I think is part of the reason I don't read a lot of young adult books because if you've seen a 16 year old boy I don't know how people can fall in love with them they're the worst things on the planet in several different respects (laughs) but to, to make it more complicated not just the friendship but the, the idea that there's several different types of love and they can't calibrate what they're feeling, not just because they're too young, but because they have no one to calibrate against. Nick doesn't have any other friends. Johnny doesn't have any friends. She, she just has employees and associates and Nick just has his family and everything's so muddled up for them, they can't get it straight and it's very stifling and unhealthy and codependent. And I feel like that's a relationship you don't see a lot of in fiction. So I wanted to see how complex I could get it and how much of their dysfunction I could make into the world's dysfunction in the book. What's the connection between their dysfunction and the world's dysfunction? Basically, the problems that arise are caused by the secrets that have to be kept for the friendship, basically by Johnny, who knows a lot of things that Nick doesn't. And so near the end, when it's becoming evident that quite literally the cost of preserving the world is going to be their friendship because the truth is going to have to come out. Um, It just, it kind of makes their problem everybody's problem (laughs) in a way because there's no way to resolve the problems between them and the problems between uh, their enemies and and the planet. It's just, they're going to have to pick one. Okay, so I don't want to get to the end because that would ruin the book for everyone. (laughs) I was thinking of a question about that, but I'm going to refrain. Let me ask you about your scientific background, your specialty as uh, in science? What What is your specialty? Uh, good question. Good question. Uh, my first degree was in molecular genetics. And then I spent a little while working for a combined uh, hepatitis cancer lab at the Medical Immunology Center here in Edmonton. And when it came time to renew my contract, I was kind of like, you know what, I thought I could spend the rest of my life in a lab. It actually turns out I cannot. There is a very specific personality type that can do that. And I graduated with a lot of those people. However, I do not have it, unfortunately. (laughs) So I worked for a little while uh, for Agriculture, Agri-Food Canada uh, with Research Canola, which was a trip, and uh, did some consulting and then went back to school to do, um, it's kind of an umbrella degree under environmental science, but basically a soil science land reclamation degree. And... uh, that's where I'm working now in as a government scientist uh, at the provincial level. You definitely have had a lot of different experiences as a scientist in different environments. And Johnny is a scientist. And clearly you have a scientific mind. What I find really interesting is that the antagonists in the story are really beyond scientific classification or comprehension. 
or categorization. They occupy a more spiritual or cosmic plane. And Johnny at one point uh, calls them gods. And she says, because I don't know another word for that much power. But then she makes a point of saying, but they're not like the gods we write about with love in the Bible and Bhagavad Gita and Silmarillion. I love that. Uh, Can you talk about these gods? You call them the ancient ones or most often really they or them with a capital T. And they're threatening to take over the world. And Johnny and Nick are really the only ones who can fight them. So who are these gods? Uh, Yeah, I love that uh, Johnny is such a nerd and she knows all these gods from these different uh, sci-fi and fantasy and and mythology texts too. Yeah, and I think that really frustrates Johnny as a scientist because she wants them to be understandable, to be comprehensible. And of course they can't be reduced down to something you can study in the lab. And that just drives her berserk because, again, she's got a bad attitude about things she doesn't know about. But these were kind of a mishmash of, I guess, not several specific pre-existing cosmic horror villains, but more the idea of those cosmic horror villains. Just the the generic kind of the the things that are the same from story to story from, from people like uh, Arthur Mackin and Algernon Blackwood and H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard and uh, Lord, Lord Dunsany and all them. You have to call them gods because we don't have another word for something that is ancient and impossibly powerful and doesn't really care what we want and and doesn't really fit into the kind of human idea of gods, such as the ones we would create, these are very different from those. There's nothing human about them. So, you know, they're, they're ancient, generally. They, uh, they're not new in any way. They have powers that we can't use or comprehend because the human mind simply can't. They may be able to do things with their bodies or psyches that we can't and can't comprehend. And generally, they're malevolent. They're, they're usually, they're evil. And in some cases, in the original text, they're evil because they have no reason to care about us the same way we sort of don't care about the bacteria on our counters. Uh, you know, we might wipe it off once in a while, but it's not because we hate them personally. But in some cases, they're evil because they've hung around with or watched humans long enough to pick up our type of evil. And that's when it becomes a game for them. And so some of the, um, like Lord, Lord Dunsany comes to mind when he writes about these ancient gods that create humans and then watch them and then start trying to do human things. But being gods, it usually ends really badly. <laughs> so that's kind of where those villains came from. It occurred to me that the ancient ones, you know, they're trying to break through the door from their world into ours. And then I thought, well, COVID-19 is a little like, you know, they're trying to, they, I say they, it, or the virus, uh, viruses are trying to break down our doors to get into our quarantined homes, or they're trying to break through our masks. And that it's inscrutable, and it seems all powerful right now. And I thought it was kind of an interesting parallel, but obviously that wasn't on your mind because, as you said, you finished the book in 2002. There was no COVID-19. 
maybe we could go back and talk actually about finishing the book. And if you finish it in 2002, what happened between then and the publication, which was of just this year in March? Well, I have, I, I've always written. So I, I really find it funny that people refer to people who have just started get, getting published as new writers. I'm like, I finished my first novel when I was like 12. I'm not a new writer. What I am is new to publishing. And it's still, after four years, so weird to me that people conflate the two as if you just started writing at the moment you started getting published, which is ridiculous. But I've always written a lot and just wrote it for myself and either got bored of it and trunked it or finished it and trunked it. And maybe over the years I would pull it out again and clean it up a little bit or I'd think of something like an anecdote or um, something like that and, and put it in and then close the file or save the disc or whatever and <laughs> set it aside. <laughs> I mean, my, my first books were, were written on WordPerfect, and I still probably have retinal damage from staring at that blue screen. But <laughs> in about uh, 2015, I decided to start trying to get published and to seek uh, literary representation uh, for various reasons. And the first thing that became evident was that you needed a finished novel to query. So I went digging through my trunk and it was just full of these god-awful monstrosities of like 300, 400,000 words that were just terrible and they were quests and like 15 people dropped out in the middle of them and nobody remembered what they were doing or what they were questing for or where they were going and names would change halfway, that kind of thing. And you read through them? You read, th I mean, I can imagine I that was painful. Yeah. I glanced at them. And then I found one that was done and a reasonable length, and it was Beneath the Rising. And I said, oh, hey, you just moved up the queue. <laughs> so I spent a couple months polishing it up, and I queried with that and got an offer of rep. And my agent polished it up a little bit, and then we booted it out the door. And then we got the uh, book deal in 2000, early 2018. So it took about almost exactly two years from signing to it coming out. And uh, that was kind of its journey. And I haven't touched any of the other abominations in the trunk. I think that's a gate that should stay closed. <laughs> I've mostly been working on newer stuff since. I don't think any of the older stuff needs to be resurrected. But yeah, all my stuff just kind of uh, sat. Because I thought that was what you did with it. It was just, it was very much my private little hobby. And it wasn't until much, much later that I thought, you know, people pay you for this, don't they? <laughs> so is that what it was? You thought, oh, I can make a little money at it? Or is it? No, that was, that was more the short stories, because short stories pay you right away. I was told by multiple people that uh, novels take a little while to pay out, I mean, except for like the first chunks of the advance, yada, yada. And I was a little nervous about publishing because I had made the mistake of reading Martin Amos's The Information in about 1999 or 2000, somewhere around there, which gives a hilariously uh, accurate, but also very, very nasty picture of kind of some back-end publishing stuff because it's a book about writers. And um, no, the, what really honestly happened was that... Uh, I had a couple of health scares at the end of 2014 and ended up in the ER. And in 2015, I was diagnosed with a uh, heart condition with the word failure in it, uh, 
which is great because then you know exactly where you stand. And the general gist from my cardiologists, uh, of whom I have two, which is nice because they, they can tag team, um, is we're going to do our best and we're going to keep an eye on it. But to be quite honest with you, right faster. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of my impetus to be like, I would like to accomplish one thing, maybe. Uh, and maybe it should be a book. I hope this works out. So I was lucky that it did. Wow. And how, I mean, if I may ask, like, how is your health now? Uh, pretty good, except for the old anxiety. But yeah, it's um, the really irritating thing about this is that about two thirds of cases, and they shouldn't have told me the scientific name also because I went and looked up all the papers on it. And they were like, don't stop. <laughs> I went and looked up all the papers on it. About two thirds of people with this condition have a slow, steady decline that you can monitor and treat with uh, medication or therapies. One third, however, the warning sign is that you die. And it's almost exactly two thirds, one third. So. Uh, <laughs> oh my, N none of those thirds end with a, uh, well, whatever. That's that's very yeah. intense, that's very intense. I'm on medication for it, so, and, and we're keeping an eye on it with uh, monitoring appointments. So I have to try to push that out of my mind while I write, but it is still very much there, the, the feeling that, you know, write faster, you don't know if you're running out of time or not. I think that we have covered a lot of ground in this conversation, and unless there's anything you would like to add, maybe uh, it's time to wrap things up. Yeah, I don't know if I have anything to add. Um, Oh, the sequel is coming out next year uh, in March. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, that's the first sequel I've ever written in my life. And that was a, a horrifying experience that I hope that I have time to get used to with many other books. But the first one, wow, that was something. So, so what was that process like for you, actually? Did you... I mean, here you opened the trunk and you pulled beneath the rising out. And not only did you pull it out, but now you've extended its life in with a whole nother story. So that's kind of incredible. Yeah. Well, and again, what's incredible about that to me, in the sense that it is incredible, I don't believe it, is that it was written as a standalone, Beneath the Rising. And uh, my agent said, well, you know what we should do? Um, a lot of sci-fi and fantasy imprints, uh, they like trilogies or they like series. Let's pitch it as a trilogy. So we did that. And then the publisher bought two books. So I feel like my life would have been easier if they had bought either one or three. <laughs> because then I had to figure out how to write a second book <laughs> that wouldn't lead into a third, but also cleaned up everything from the first book, which again was meant to end right where it ended. And so A, I had to figure that out. And B, under a time limit, which I've never had before in my entire lazy, spoiled life. I just wrote whenever I wanted to. And now I'm trying to meet these deadlines around my day job and, and everything else that I'm trying to do. But also, and a lot more challengingly, to try to recapture the voice from like 20 years ago. Like, I'm not a peer with these two teenagers anymore. And now I look at them and I'm like, get off my lawn. Like, go go back to school, do your homework and make good decisions. 
it was very easy to write an 18-year-old when I was 18. And now I'm extremely not. <laughs> and, and looking at it and thinking, this is going to, everything is going to sound wrong. Everything is going to be wrong. And how do you not just rewrite the same book with slightly different changes? I don't know. I, I found it very challenging. So, but so you decided not to jump ahead eighteen years in their lives. That I suppose that could. Have I thought been an about option. it. I thought that would have been the easier option. But there is something, and and I know I've said this in other interviews, but to me there was something at the end of the book. Um, every, you know, everything's a mess, of course. At the end, uh, there's still a lot of things dangling, like tentacles, and I thought there's something to the idea that time heals all wounds. I actually didn't want those wounds to be healed. I wanted them to be still raw, and I wanted all the emotions to still be very high, even if people were maybe pretending that they weren't. And I wanted a world in the process of trying to figure out what happened. My God, what happened? We have no idea. And, and, and rebuilding from something that lasted like less than two minutes and that they can't study or fix or prevent or forecast, you know? And is it done? Have you submitted the manuscript? Yes, I handed it in May 31st, and I had a little celebration. <laughs> wow, congratulations. That's fantastic. Well, on that note, that's a, that's a triumphant note on which to conclude the interview. I've been talking to Premi Muhammad about her debut novel, Beneath the Rising, which came out in March from Solaris Books. Thank you so much for coming uh, on New Books and Science Fiction. Thank you so much for having me on, Rob. You've been listening to New Books and Science Fiction. You can subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. You can also leave a review to show your support. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. The show was edited by me and brought to you via the New Books Network, which is edited by the network's founder, Marshall Poe, and co-editor, Leanne Wilson. Stay safe, eat healthy, sleep well, and thank you for taking the time to listen.